Okay, so turn back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, so here's what we're doing. It's been a month and a half since we've been in Isaiah. Uh, we've spent uh, several weeks just talking about uh, items related to the coronavirus, and uh, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, there's other things that we need to think through uh, it, as how our Christian faith applies to uh, transitioning back and whatnot. So we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about more of that in the future. But in the meantime, we need to get back to Isaiah. Uh, as promised, we're going to get back to this book that uh, helps us to see God for the greatness of who he is. And uh, what I'm doing today is I'm going to, I'm just going to review today. We're going to get, a, as I said, we're going to set the table and kind of get a, a running start for uh, starting chapter 41 next week. Uh, we picked up so many new people uh, over the Zoom. Uh, that um, uh, I wanted to go back and review. Plus, I know uh, you've slept like I have since then. And, and we, we need to have Chapter 40 really riveted in our minds moving into Chapter 41 and following. So uh, so just be mindful of that and uh, be looking forward to these coming chapters. I, I'll tell you, that the, guys, in Isaiah, the best is yet to come. I mean, if you've enjoyed Isaiah thus far, well, praise the Lord, but but the really, really good stuff, the, the mountaintop views of Isaiah are yet to come in these chapters. So um, uh, just uh, uh, hang on to your hats because uh, it's going to be a great journey here together. Uh, so looking together at Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to come back there and uh, walk you through just kind of where we go from here. So let me do that and bring up the PowerPoint here so all of you can see that. Let's see. There we go. Okay. Give me a thumbs up if you can see the PowerPoint. Does that all look good there? Great. Okay, so the title of our our our, uh, our study, and, and for those of you that are new that have not been with us in Isaiah, uh, we're calling it Seeing God Through Judgment and Redemption. And uh, just by way of review, um, the title of the message today is called The Incomparable God. And uh, as you heard in just reading Isaiah 40, you understand why that is and why we're calling it this. Uh, I, w- I was I was thinking that we we could call this like um you know the tiny virus versus the incomparable God you know I think about titles we could do here you know the the unstoppable virus versus the incomparable God and and really that that's how we need to think about uh, uh, these truths today is is we we want to personalize what we're reading to the struggles and the challenges and the things that we're up against today and. I don't know that we can go wrong in any affliction or any trial or any difficulty by reminding ourselves of the greatness and the glory of who God is. And uh, I I don't know that there's a better chapter in Scripture to do that other than Isaiah chapter 40. Now, uh, you'll recall this. uh, I I read this quote many weeks ago, but I want to remind it, remind you again. With the quote, this is A.W. Tozer from his book called The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, that's true today. That's true as we move into a time of um, uh, reconnecting and, and uh, you know, restarting the economy is what we've heard all week, right? And whatever that looks like, what we need most of all is to think rightly about God as the most important thing about us. And Isaiah is going to help us to do that. Um, but uh, Mr. Tozer's point here 
is simply that we always live out of our theology. We always live out of our theology. And he goes on to say that Christians never rise higher than their own view of God. And so if we look at our lives and say, you know what, I don't have the Christian life, the the godliness, the righteousness, the Christian maturity that I would long to have, what Tozer would say is, maybe your view of God needs some improvement. Uh, And by that, he doesn't mean that God needs improvement, but simply that we need to grow in our understanding of who he is. Okay, now now look at the chart here. Uh, and again, for, especially those for those of you that are new, um, you need to get your bearing here. And I know this is a little bit overwhelming to, to look at this chart together, but but follow me here, and I'll uh, you can follow the uh, the the bouncing ball. How does that work here? Uh, okay, can you see that? Is that showing up there? Okay, so the the first part of the book is right here. Okay, the first part of the book is right here. It's really about prophecies of condemnation. As, as Isaiah, as you open the book of Isaiah, chapter one is this indictment on the nation of Judah for their lack of faithfulness and their lack of obedience, their, their idolatrous worship of other gods. And, uh, so you see just chapter after chapter, section after section, Isaiah, um, is, is calling the people of Judah. Now, now, just by by reminder here, okay. Uh, but but let, let's just back up for a minute, okay. The time frame is 740 to 680 BC. That's when this is going on when Isaiah is prophesying, and he's talking uh, in what we think of as Israel and Judah. Israel being the northern kingdom, Judah being the southern kingdom. You'll remember that the 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 nation has been divided, and um, one of the things we will see in Isaiah's time is that the northern kingdom, Israel, will be taken into captivity. But Isaiah really has in mind, he's really talking mostly to the southern kingdom of Judah in this book. So anyway, so back to section 1, chapter 1 to 39, is really just prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of God's coming judgment. Uh, we've seen uh, wicked kings making pacts with the enemy. We, we've seen all sorts of things. And so, and yet all throughout these, these 39 chapters of the first section of the book, God gives promise. He gives hope that there's, there's a Messiah coming. There's a Redeemer coming who will one day make all things right. And God preserves a remnant of his people that even in the midst of blatant disobedience and idolatry, there is a hope that uh, he is preserving a small group of faithful people through all of that. Okay. So that's where, that's where we've come. And this historical parenthesis is all about Hezekiah. Uh, he was really the last king that, uh, Isaiah talks about, the king of, of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was a relatively good king. I mean, he toppled many of the high places. Uh, he, uh, rebuked the people. He brought back, um, appropriate worship practices and, uh, and everything was good. Uh, and then, uh, Sennacherib, the, uh, uh, Assyrian king comes in and he's ready to destroy the southern kingdom. And, uh, Hezekiah goes and he prays for God to deliver him. And God does this great deliverance and he dies. And, and every, you know, the, the, the Assyrians wander back to Assyria, their tail between their legs, defeated, shamed, and, uh, praise the Lord, right? 
And yet that starts a downward spiral of Hezekiah's pride as that success brought about uh, an arrogance. And uh, eventually he gets sick. He prays to God. God hears his prayer and gives him a few more years before he dies. And then, as I mentioned before we read Isaiah 40, the, the last thing we hear about Hezekiah is he's showing off his treasures and his wealth and recounting his victories to all these surrounding nations. And Isaiah comes and says, but you know what? In the future, your sons will be taken away. The place will be destroyed. All the things that you're showing off will be carried back to Babylon. Nothing will be left. This is chapter 39, verse 6 and 7. And Hezekiah says in chapter 39, verse 8, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and truth in my days. So, it ends on this sour note, doesn't it? Here's Hezekiah. We think this is the guy to finally bring the people back to uh, trusting God and to obeying him. He, he started off so well, and he concludes his career focused on himself and, and not, not caring about the future even of his own children, uh, caught up in his own wealth and his own success. And so we we conclude chapter 39 going, is there nobody that's going to help these people? Is there is there nothing that can be done? And that's why chapter 40, verse 1 starts with comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. God says, I will provide comfort and I will provide uh, the, the needed uh, change and growth and all that. Okay, so let's get some perspective here as, as we come into this section, second section. Remember, Isaiah did not live to see the prophecy fulfilled of the Babylonian captivity. He, he didn't live long enough to see that. That's going to start in 605. You'll, you'll remember from your history that the Babylonian captivity, meaning when the Babylonians come in and begin to, to uh, attack Jerusalem, that's going to take place in three stages. The first one happens in 605, and then the final one, when they finally break in through the city and uh, set the place on fire is in 586 B.C. So it comes in in three stages. But remember, Isaiah is not going to live to see that. So as he's prophesying in chapter 40 about comfort, remember he's looking ahead past the Babylonian captivity to a time when God's people will need to be uh, saved and recovered from their time away. But remember, these prophecies in the chapters, look forward to the time after the Babylonian captivity. So we've, we've got to keep that in mind here, okay? Isaiah is talking about a time that he will not live through, but a time in which the Israelites will come back uh, from Babylon following the Babylonian captivity. So let's just, let's just break this down. And again, if you've just jumped on, if you click on the chat window, there are notes. If you'd like to follow along, uh, you are free to do that, okay? Chapter 40. Verses 1 and 2 is a message of comfort we see here in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Uh, now, what does he mean there? They've received double for, uh, it says there, uh, she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That refers to the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the Babylonian captivity was a sort of disciplinary action that God brought against his people for their idolatry. So he's essentially saying here at this point, uh, they have been disciplined, they have been punished, so to speak, for their sins, and now it is time for comfort. Now, what does verse 3 mean 
and when does it happen? Verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, what do you think about that? When is that going to happen? Uh, when is that going to be fulfilled? Any any ideas? And uh, I've got you guys minimized, so just unmute and jump in if you think you know. How about in the days of John the Baptist? Okay, yeah, you, you recognize that quote, don't you? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Yes, we, we, we uh, have a reference in the New Testament here. Uh, this verse ultimately is going to point to uh, the coming of John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. And that's really interesting because you'll remember, and again, those of you that are new to Isaiah, you've got, you've got to remember this, that Isaiah doesn't tell us when he's transitioning from talking about something that's going to happen in the near future to something that's going to happen in the distant future. And so what he's doing here is he's playing around with near future and distant future here. Um, so, yes, ultimately this will refer to the Messiah coming and uh, uh, the one who prepares the way for the Lord. That's right. Is there also an immediate or sort of immediate fulfillment in yes. the people coming back from Babylon? Yeah, thanks, Carl. That's right, because the, the the immediate context of what Isaiah is talking about here is the messengers who will announce uh, the return of God's people from Babylon. So, yes, there's a sort of a near-term fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. So you're absolutely right. And Isaiah likes to uh, uh, to tease us a little bit with, with some of those uh, – some of those uh, passages that that have what we call in, in uh, uh, theologians call those double referent passages, where there's there's a near term fulfillment and a far term uh, uh, distant uh, fulfillment as well. Okay. Now, how does the eternal nature of God's word provide hope? Look at this. Look at chapter 40, verses six to eight. A voice calls out, "What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all of the loveliness is like the flower of the field." The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So so what do you think? How does the eternal nature of God's word speak comfort to the people as they, you know, they're, they're looking forward to being delivered, but this looks forward, uh, this, this is writing to them at the time that they're in captivity, they're in judgment. Um, how does the eternal nature of God's word encourage them? Any ideas? Well, um, God's word is everlasting. It is everlasting, that's right. And how does that help us? When, uh, well, how does it help the Israelites when they're in captivity? Well, it gives them hope. It does give them hope, right? Yeah, see, I think, and we've talked about this, uh, we talked about this last week in Psalm 43, that sometimes when we're in affliction and trial and suffering and difficulty, especially something that's chronic, right? Something that, that just goes on and on and on. We have to be very careful 
about what we believe about God and what we believe about what's actually true. Remember how the psalmist was interpreting his circumstances wrongly, leading him to inaccurate conclusions about God? Do you remember that in in Psalm 43 last week? Well, that's part of what Isaiah is saying here is that we remember that God's word is eternal. It's reliable. It doesn't change. And therefore, we can we can stand upon it strongly in terms of what it's going to teach about us, uh, or excuse me, what it's going to teach about God and, and his truth. So the, the, the reminder here that the word of our God stands forever is a reminder that God's promises to his people are still true and will still happen. They need to trust him even in this season of discipline. Okay, does that make sense? And uh, we, can, we can certainly think, we, we can certainly think about this in the context of our situation also. You know, it's, it's easy right now to think that that verse about obeying the, the ruling authorities and the governing officials, uh, it, it's easy to start to question, well, you know, maybe, maybe God doesn't want us always doing that. And, uh, if, if we don't think that uh, our government officials are handling things the right way, or maybe, maybe God isn't going to provide for our needs. Uh, if we're looking at a dwindling retirement account right now, or we're looking at uh, health issues, we, we talked about several prayer requests today where um, the news, the medical news is not good, right? But to, to remember that God's word is true and he will walk with us through our afflictions and he will provide for our needs and he will encourage us and give us grace, whatever the struggles of the day uh, happen to bring. And, uh, and so we, we stand on the eternal word of God. It's interesting, the contrast here. Um, <laughs> and, and, and this is not, you guys understand that the Bible is not out to increase your self-esteem. I, and I, I hate to be the one to break this to you. I really do. Uh, it, it, the Bible is not here to make you feel good about yourself. And in fact, the Bible says here, uh, you're grass. All right, you're grass. Just write that down. I am grass, right? And uh, what, is, what does he mean? We're here today, we're gone tomorrow, um, you know, transient, momentary. And, uh, and of course, you know, Isaiah is not saying by that, that that people don't live forever, either in judgment or in blessing. You know, we understand that. What he's saying is compared to the transient, temporary, always changing, frail uh, nature of who we are as human beings, we have a steady, sure, eternal, hopeful, nothing can change it, nothing can thwart it, uh, hope in the word of God. And uh, so that's what brings us help in days of uncertainty. Now, who is the Lord and what does he do? Now, th- this is where uh, this chapter turns a corner. And uh, look at what he says here. Behold, the Lord will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and he and his recompense before him. Okay, so who is the Lord? What does he do? That's what Isaiah really wants to focus on. He comes to reward. He comes to recompense, as it says here. And uh, we can think, you know, uh, ultimately we see uh, this happening in final judgment. Uh, but what do we see? What do we see in the context of Isaiah's day? We, we see that God as the people repent in their captivity, as they turn back to God from their idolatry, 
God again turns his mercy and grace to them and says that he will come, he will rescue them, he will reward them. Verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, his arm, he will carry the lamb. So he shepherds the people. This is, this is really one of the images of, um, of who God is, right? You all the, all these different, uh, ways of thinking about God's care. And, uh, you know, all of us know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And, uh, the shepherding metaphor is one of the main ways that the Bible teaches that God comes and helps us and rescues us. He's tending, he's gathering, he's caring for. And, uh, you know, we know from other sermons and other studies, uh, that, that sheep were prone to wander. They were prone to foolish, uh, uh, practices uh, that they, they need to be watered and fed. They need to be led. Uh, they're very helpless in and of themselves. And again, uh, this is not the self-esteem message. Not only are you grass, but God here is reminding us that we're like a wandering, naive sheep, and we need the shepherding care of God. And so he leads them, he shepherds them. And, uh, and, and what Isaiah really wants to talk about is the incomparable nature of God. And uh, some of you remember some of these from uh, the last time we did this study. Uh, some of you uh, are new, and so uh, we want to go through these uh, quickly, but, but nonetheless so that you get some bearing. Look at, look at where this goes in verse... Okay, there's a typo there. He rewards is verse 10. He shepherds the people. That should be verse 11. But look at where this goes, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. So uh, he created the massive structures of the universe. That's the first thing there. He created the massive structures of the universe. So he has no counselor or advisor, right? Uh, he... Uh, verse 13, who directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him, there's no higher court, uh, there's no advisory panel, uh, there's no cabinet that uh, God turns to for advice and counsel. Uh, he is fully sufficient in his all-knowing nature, in his wisdom, in his being, and there are no advisors, no counselors, uh, none like that. And the nations are as nothing compared to him. Now remember, this is a message to God's people in Babylon. And he says the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Uh, there is no nation, no country, no threat, no enemy that uh, is any match for the incomparable God. And, and by the way, that, that, that is true for mighty nations. That is true for mighty viruses and mighty illnesses. Uh, there is no one uh, as great as God. Now let's think about this here. Look back at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and again, some of you remember these from last time, but let's review them just to just to load into our brains today the really the incomprehensible nature of God. Okay, 
Uh, now, I know it's Sunday morning, and as I promised, there would be no math. So I've done all the math for you here. Uh, take, take courage. No, no algebra or calculus uh, needed today. So there are 332,519,000 cubic miles of water on the planet, approximately. Uh, that's a lot of water. That, that's an incre- that, that's a, an incalculable number, really, and we, we can't possibly imagine that. And yet, uh, verse 12 says that God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Are, are any of you in your kitchen right now? Are any of you watching this from your kitchen? Okay. Yes. Uh, in your cabinet, I bet you have some measuring cups. Okay. And, uh, and that, and you maybe you have like, like a one cup measuring cup, like you're going to make cookies or brownies or something later on this afternoon. You get out the measuring cups. Okay. And you can imagine if you took out a one cup measuring cup and you placed it in your hand, uh, you would agree with me that that, that cup, that one cup measuring cup holds more liquid than your palm, doesn't it? One little cup. And what Isaiah has just told us is that the measuring cup that fits into the palm of the hand of God himself will hold, look at it with me again, guys, 332,519,000 cubic miles of water. Uh, so let that, let that just make your, make your head hurt, okay? It's supposed to make your brain hurt to think about that. That is the greatness and incomparable nature of God. But he's not done. Look at this. He's marked off the heavens by the span. He's marked off the heavens by the span. And he's calculated the mountains, uh, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance. Anybody know what uh, what mountain is this? Is it Kilimanjaro? Okay, good guess. Yes. Okay. All right. So, so if we, if we do the math on this, okay. Now this is hard. If, if you could, if you could take, uh, a, a really, 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 really big John Deere implement and, uh, and you could dig up this mountain. And then if you could somehow prepare a, a, a scale, a weighing system to measure the weight of this huge mountain, you get 357 trillion pounds. That, that is absolutely astounding. But, but notice with me that Isaiah says he doesn't just, he doesn't just weigh a mountain in a pair of scales. He calculates the dust and weighs all the mountains and all the hills in a pair of scales. And uh, it's just it's mind-boggling how, how big, how great, how massive he is, and and um, just just absolutely astounding. And so Isaiah gives us these pictures. Now, now, now you notice this, right? How do you how do you put your arms around somebody who is incalculable? How do you even do that? I mean, how do you, you say, God, you know, we all learned this in Sunday school, right? God is big. God is great. God is, you know, powerful. It's like, well, yeah, but what does that even mean? And so Isaiah gives us three examples here where we try to, 
to think about this. And it just, it just really is absolutely astounding how all this works. Okay. So who is the Lord and what does he do? Uh, he is great. He measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. He marks up the heavens. He calculates the dust in the mountains. Uh, look at this. Look at verses 18 and following. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. So, you know, you, ha- you have God who who puts the stars in the sky, who measures the mountains, who calculates the waters, right? That, that, you know, in this corner, we have Yahweh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only divine sovereign of the universe, you know, awesome in all his ways, kind in all his deeds, right? And, and then in this corner, we have the idol. Uh, the guy who built it is too tired right now. He's sleeping, and, and in the morning, he's going to go select a tree, and then he's going to cut the tree down. And then he's going to plate it with gold, right? And, and then, and then he's uh, he's going to uh, uh, set it up, and uh, we're going to bow down and worship that. And and you understand this is hard to understand in our day, but that was that was where people in this culture actually put their hope. You know, when they had illnesses, when they had deaths, when they had financial needs, when they had difficulties they turned literally to these statues and you know uh, if we sort of contemporize this and say you know well we're not we're not turning to gold-plated uh, you know Hindu gods that we put up in our living room but in a secular culture like we live in there are immaterial idols that we turn to, and we look to in our day of trouble to try to somehow help us and make us feel better. I mean, think of, think of just what's gone on in the last weeks uh, and, and talk to me here. What are some of the things that people have turned to for ultimate help and hope in the days of coronavirus? Uh, t- talk to me here. What are some of those things? Science. Okay, science. Now, now, do we like science? Are we thankful for science? Nod your head. Give me a thumbs up. Yes, yes. We, we are, are we grateful? Yes, we are. Absolutely. I mean, th- think about when this happened a hundred years ago in 1918, and the drastic difference in outcome. And much of that is related to just the scientific advances that have happened in a mere 100 years of our history. So we're thankful for that. But but how does science become a replacement for God? Any ideas? What we're hoping in. It's what we trust in. That's right. Yeah, we, we, can, we can make it a sort of ultimate... Uh, ultimate uh, uh, help or hope, right? We, we can say uh, we can say that uh, science, although we're thankful for it, it, it can't be what we look. You know, th- think about think of the thousands of people that have died of the COVID ID respiratory disease. 
that had the best science in the world working for them. They had the best doctors. They had the best nurses. Um, they had the best medical care, right? That, that's true. That, that, that's really the, the blessed nation that we live in. And there are people, you know, how many of those people said medicine is our hope? And tell me, what happens then when that loved one dies and medicine fails? What happens? Hope is gone. Yeah. See, our hope follows the reliability, the certainty, the power of the object that we worship, right? And if we put our ultimate hope in something that is not able to bear that weight, then our hope dissolves when the thing that we're living for, the things that we're looking to fails to help us in our day. And, and that, and again, I think that's one of the ways that God is redeeming this time is he, he's reminding us we can't put our hope in our 401k. Can we? We can't put our hope in medicine alone. We can't, we can't put our hope in managing our own health and, and good night in, in the, the, the culture of I control my own health. God has pulled the rug out of that false idol and that false worship and said, we don't control that. We don't control what we get on Amazon. We don't control freedom to do what we want to do. Uh, it, it is really incredible how many things that God has shaken through the COVID ID time and he's, he's, you know, really, God asks one question throughout all of life, and that is, will you trust me alone? That's it. Will you trust me alone? We can be thankful for these other things that are his kind gifts and his graces in many cases, but we can only trust God alone. And so we, we, we are careful to not put our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust in those things. Now, in Isaiah's day, it was idols. And, uh, Notice also this, he says, not only are idols worthless, he comes back and says, and, and who, who do you know God to be, right? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood that from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth. Meaningless. Think about this, guys. He runs the 93 billion light year size universe every day, or 5.5, and then add 23 zeros after that. Uh, that's the size of the universe. I've done this, I think, twice right now. I'm going to do it one more time because I know about a third of you have never seen this before. Okay, but just watch this, and those of you that have seen this already, uh, be amazed once again. Okay, you ready? Okay, so here's Earth. You got it? There's Earth, and we're like, right? There. Okay? Got it? There's Earth, and we're right there. Now, the Earth is a part of a solar system, right? You remember this from uh, fifth grade uh, science class? There's the Sun, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and uh, the Earth, of course, is right here, and we have our uh, planets, nine or eight, depending on what your view is on Pluto. Um, but uh, anyway, so nonetheless, there is our solar system there, okay? And there's our Earth, of which we occupy one little spot here, 
called Texas, inside of which is one little county called Hood County, inside of which is one little town called Granbury. Okay, so there's the Earth. The Earth is one planet in our solar system. And our solar system now exists as one solar system. Here it is right here in a, say it with me class, solar interstellar neighborhood. That's right. The solar system in a solar system neighborhood. If Mr. Rogers was here, he would sing, it's a beautiful day in the solar interstellar neighborhood. Because uh, we occupy our teeny tiny little planet in our solar system in a solar system neighborhood. Now, our solar interstellar neighborhood occupies but one interstellar solar neighborhood within a whole galaxy called the Milky Way. Now, you've heard that. That's not a chocolate bar. That's the name of our galaxy. Now, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is just one galaxy now in a local galactic group. Okay, so here's the Milky Way, of which we are one solar interstellar neighborhood, of which we have a solar system in that neighborhood, of which our own solar system, of which we occupy a planet, of which we are one one country, one state, one county, one city, okay? So we zoom out, one solar system, stellar neighborhood, one Milky Way galaxy in a local galactic group of galaxies, right? And that local galactic group of galaxies is in what is called the Virgo supercluster, okay? Yes, there's our local galactic group. Here is the Virgo supercluster. And that supercluster is just one of many local superclusters in the known universe. And our local superclusters in a region of local superclusters is just one local supercluster region within the observable universe. Any questions on that? Okay. So, again, this is not the self-esteem uh, Bible study. If you were looking for the self-esteem class, you came in the wrong Zoom room today, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, you are grass. You are regarded as nothing. We look at God's, God's, uh, the, <laughs> say the, the measuring cups that God had, has in his cupboard are way bigger than the ones you have in your cupboard. And in case you missed it, we are a speck in all of this. Okay. So earth, Occupies solar system, part of a solar interstellar neighborhood, part of Milky Way galaxy, part of a local galactic group, part of Virgo supercluster, part of a local superclusters, which is one in the observable universe, okay? So in all of that, we're looking at 5.5 times 10 to the 23 miles, okay? Are you amazed yet? Look back at verse 22. He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, okay? So God, okay, you, you, you with me? Are you ready to fall off your couch with me? You ready? God says that when he set up this universe, it was like setting up a tent. <laughs> so this is like when you get out your Coleman Dome tent when you're camping at the Texas State Park, God says that's what it was like for me to put this universe together. And Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do you not understand the magnitude, the scope, the wisdom, the ability, the incomprehensive nature, the immensity, the power, the authority of this God who's made you his people? 
I mean, that, that is incredible, incredible. And that's why Isaiah says we have comfort. We have assurance. We're not freaking out. We're not anxious. We're not worried. This is why we don't have to turn to other resources and say, oh, what am I going to do? We have the God who stretches out the universe like he's putting up a dome tent. And he knows us and he loves us and he cares for us and he's promised to us and he provides for our needs. Look at this. Uh, verse 12 says, he's marked off the heavens by the span. What is that? That's the span of his hand. And there, this picture images him holding the universe in the palm of his hand. And uh, just absolutely, absolutely, you know, brain-stopping, jaw-dropping, incredible amazement. Pastor Terry talked about the fear of the Lord last week. Do you remember that from, from Proverbs? And if you do a study of the fear of the Lord in your whole Bible, one of the topics, like if you if your view of God is too small today, and you're you're struggling with a with a, a small view of God complex, one of the areas that the Bible says to focus on that will increase your fear of the Lord, your your awe, your wonder about who He is, is to study God and His role as the Creator of the universe, and that's what we're doing right now. We walk away amazed and in awe of who he is. Idols are created. He runs the universe. He invalidates and annihilates the rulers. 23, he reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. I love this. He merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. These these mighty Babylonians, the mighty Assyrians, God says, you know what? You know those little wildflowers that you pick this time of year in Texas and you pick one of those up and you blow on the petals and the petals go flying off. God says, that's what the rulers are like. That's what the mightiest warriors and kings and judges and rulers of the earth are like. I just blow on them and they're gone with the wind. That's who God is. He is incomparable. Look at this. Who then will you liken me, 25, that I would be as equal? Lift up your eyes and see who has created these stars. Look at verse 26. He names and sustains all 100 billion stars, right? He gives them all. He, it says he leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name, and because of the greatness of his power and the strength of his might, not one of them is missing. Okay? You ready for this? Okay, you ready? Are you ready? With all of that, with all of that, he says, look at verse 27. Look down. Look down at your Bible. You're not looking down. Look down. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob... And assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Okay, look up, look up, look at your camera. I want to see, I want to see your eyes, okay? Here's what he says. With all of that, why are you worried? What are you upset about? What are you anxious about? What can this God not do for you? What can he not provide? 
What enemy can overturn him? What, what circumstance will be too much for him? It, it, Isaiah's like, I'm out of tools. I don't, I don't have anything else. Why do you still not trust him? Why do you do that? But he's not done. He's not done. Look at this. Verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? This is, this is the big crescendo. Okay. This is the, this is the final plea here. Do you not know? Have you not heard the, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? Let's see here. Wrong one. Let's go back here. There we go. There we go. Okay. Yes. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not become weary or tired. Just stop right there. Imagine what your life would be like if you never got tired. Quacks, you, you guys got those little kids. Warrens, you guys got those little kids. Mom and dad had inexhaustible energy. You could actually outlast your small children. Grandparents. Grandparents, look at me here. Grandparents, I see you there. You could keep up with your grandkids and they would be the ones saying, granddad, oh, slow down. We can, right? Inexhaustible resources, never tired, never weary, never needing a nap. His understanding, his, his knowledge, his intellectual capacity is unscrutable. You, you cannot exhaust it. You cannot overwhelm it. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks power, uh, him who lacks, he increases power. Look at this. He's incomparable. He cannot forget his people or his promises. He creates the universe. He doesn't get tired. His understanding is beyond discovery. And verse 29, he gives strength to the weary. He, and to him who lacks power, he, he gives it to them. He strengthens and helps. Verse 30, Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. Okay, I proved that last Sunday. If I can think of myself still as a young man, I stumbled badly and ended up on my nose. And yet, and yet, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Remember we talked about waiting last time? Remember that? That that word wait means a active, confident, Quiet trust that God will act according to his perfect will at exactly the right time. That's what waiting means, right? It is an active, confident, quiet trust that is sure that God will bring about what he said he will do. He will act according to his perfect will exactly at the right time. Now, that's written to those in Babylon in captivity, and God is saying, I haven't forgotten you. I will remember you. I will redeem you. I will bring you back at exactly the right time. You trust me. You wait on my timing. You don't fret. You don't be anxious, but trust me. Verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not get weary. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that when you are actively trusting God with a quiet heart, you have a, a capacity beyond what your circumstances would dictate? Have you noticed that? You can relax. You can get stuff done. 
You, you can flourish. You, you can live. You can serve. You can love other people. You, you can enjoy the parts of life that are God's kind gifts that, that we know a supernatural ability when we trust God and exercise a quiet confidence in him. We need in these days a big view of our mighty God. If this is who he is, there is no virus. There is no financial difficulty. There is no health challenge. There is no relational problem. There is no marital situation. There is no struggle with an adult child. There is no overwhelming situation where it seems like I'm never going to get this work done. It's, it's not going to turn out okay. If this is who God is and this is his nature and this is what he is in his being, if this is what he's created and sustains in terms of his universe, we take a deep breath and we relax and we do what God has always and always will ask us to do. You can reduce our faith to one simple question that God is constantly asking us in every circumstance of life, and that is, will you trust me? And that's it. That's it. Christianity does not get any more complicated than trusting in the incomparable God alone, whatever our circumstance. And it was true in Isaiah's day in the Babylonian captivity. It is still true today in whatever our circumstances are, that we, we serve a big and great God. So we can take a breath, we can relax, and we can trust him with a quiet submission to whatever he brings into our life because we know he's good and we know his promises are true, and we know he will bring about the exact perfect will that he has planned for us in his perfect time. Okay, guys, let's pray. Uh, Father, we're so thankful again for this reminder of who you are. Uh, will you help us to trust you alone, to wait with a quiet heart on your timing, and to know that we can take a breath and relax we can relax. We can be okay because this is who you are. And as amazing as this is, you love us. You call us into a relationship in your family through Christ. And uh, we are secure in that relationship. And uh, so we are so thankful to just remember these things today. Would you help us the next time our heart rises up in anxiety or fear or worry? Would you help us to remember this picture of who you are in Isaiah to just turn to you in simple trust and relax knowing that you're doing all things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.